I should like to tell you that I have seen some of the experiments shown in this film actually carried out at the All-Russian Physiological Congress. As you can imagine, technique is everything. This is Liberty and Justice for All with Jack and Paul. On episode three of the podcast, we talked to George Selgin of the Cato Institute. Our conversation ranges from free banking and the Federal Reserve to financial history and a number of other topics as well. Hope you enjoy. We have George Selgin here with us today. George is the senior fellow and director at the Cato Institute Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Thanks for being here this morning, George. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. So, George, you're one of the founders of the Modern Free Banking School. Can you tell us about what free banking is? Sure. Uh, The simplest definition of free banking is simply banking with no special government regulations. Banking, as it might uh, work if the banking industry were were treated like any ordinary uh, unregulated industry. Now, uh, the answer starts getting complicated by the fact that uh, in today's fiat money system, there are certain aspects of of the system that are hard to deregulate compared to in the past. So it's easier to understand free banking in a historical uh, uh, context, because in that kind of context, you could have no role at all for any privileged bank or central bank. So uh, in old free banking systems, the closest approximations would be the Scottish system of the late uh, 18th and early 19th century and the Canadian system for much of the 19th century, if not uh, uh, the early 20th. Those systems were specie standards, so the fundamental form of money, forms of money consisted of gold or silver coins. And uh, the only paper currency, or the mass of it anyway, was provided by commercial banks that were competing. So not only were banks deregulated in the more conventional sense of having market-established interest rates, no deposit insurance, no reserve ratios, uh, no capital requirements, no portfolio restrictions, ability to branch. They're deregulated in all these ways in which we might think of deregulated banking today. But there was the further uh, the further uh, de- deregulation consisting of their ability to issue the circulating paper money that was used at the time. Uh, and, and, and I should add, there were n- negative aspects to freedom in banking or free banking. There was a lack of any kind of guarantees from the government, including deposit insurance uh, or a lender of last resort. And uh, 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 that uh, that l- absence of those guarantees was an important part of the workings of the system. So the banks provided the money. You didn't have a government providing money. Was that Did that system work back then? Yes, they worked very well. Let me just qualify uh, the point about the government uh, providing money. As I said, uh, none of these past systems, uh, Scottish, Canadian, or otherwise, none of them was a pristine example of uh, what I've defined free banking to be. The Canadian system, for example, uh, did involve some government paper money, the so-called Dominion notes, 
the supply of which was absolutely fixed, but it included a monopoly of the very smallest de uh, uh, denomination notes. The banks could provide anything else, and their notes were generally preferred. In Scotland, you didn't even have uh, any, you had no government paper money at all, nor did the notes of the Bank of England circulate much in Scotland. And these systems did work very well. So if we were to move to more of a free banking system today, would you foresee maintaining the dollar, the, the government dollar, in addition to, say, in competition with bank-provided notes? Exactly, Yes. And uh, there are two points to be made in, in trying to conceive of this modern version of free banking. The first is that unless you hope to establish or reestablish a commodity standard, then one, you're pretty much assuming that we're sticking to the present fiat dollar as the basic money. But the banks could still issue substitutes, closer substitutes than they're allowed to issue today. To, uh, for circulating paper dollars, whether those, and this is the second point, whether those close substitutes consist of paper or of other things like smart cards, etc., that function like circulating currency but aren't made of paper, that's not important. What is important is that there are no barriers to the banks uh, trying to outcompete the government in the business of providing not just deposit money, but, but circulating uh, forms of money. So th this is a fascinating concept to me. A lot of folks, when we talk about the provision of money, people can't even really get their minds around any more private institutions providing the money. They often see the dollar as being such a critical part of the economy. Might it be the case that providing private money actually could yield a stronger dollar because it's subject to competition. What's your view on how the dollar might ultimately end up in this more competitive money marketplace? Well, to, to harken back to, to history again first, uh, the dollar, of course, uh, in the United States is older than uh, the Federal Reserve System and older than fiat money. It was a, it was a metallic unit. In fact, <laughs> for a long time, it was two different metallic units, one made, made of silver and another made of, of uh, gold. Uh, and likewise, uh, that, uh, those metallic, that metallic unit uh, operated in Canada, too, which had the same dollar as the U.S. as its basic money. And uh, if we look at the Canadian and versus the U.S. arrangements back in the 19th century, we find the freer Canadian system with its banks free to branch nationwide, with n practically no restrictions on their note issue, with capital requirements that existed but were not really binding until relatively late in the story. Uh, the Canadian system was far more stable than the U.S. system. It, it, it avoided all of the crises that beset the, the U.S. banking system. Now, of course, to understand the difference, one has to be familiar with the uh, substantial regulations that afflicted the U.S. system before the Fed was established. A lot of people make the mistake of thinking that before the Fed, the U.S. had unregulated banking or even free banking. And indeed, they had some systems before the Civil War that state systems that were called free banking systems. This has become an infinite source of confusion mm -hmm. to people. If you actually look at the rules of those so-called free banking systems in the U.S., you'll find very important restrictions on what the banks could do, including the fact that they couldn't branch, none of them could branch at all. 
They had very restrictive policies for the note issue. And these restrictions, these regulations on so-called U.S. free banks were the biggest cause of problems in those systems. So anyway, both before and after the Civil War, the U.S. system was, in important respects, more regulated than the Canadian one, and the Canadian system just <laughs> absolutely clobbered the U.S. system in stability and efficiency and in other respects as well. So you had mentioned a few minutes ago that there weren't Bank of England notes circulating in Scotland, although the Bank of England's been around for a long time, yes, much longer than the Federal Reserve. That's correct. And also, although those countries as well had the same basic unit, the British pound was the same in Scotland and in England uh, from 1707 onwards. So it's not that Bank of England notes could not have been useful in Scotland. It's simply that the people there preferred the notes of their own commercial banks and they had no use for Bank of England notes. Uh, and, uh, and so the, the, those notes never gained widespread circulation in Scotland. It should be said that Scottish bank notes gained only limited circulation in England. So, mm. uh, but, um, but while we're talking about that, uh, there are there are uh, other examples in American history that suggest the advantages of freedom in banking. Whenever we had crises, and we had many, as I mentioned, in the 19th and early early 20th centuries, they're the ones that, have, of course, uh, led to the establishment of the Fed. Whenever a crisis occurred in the U.S., there tended to be shortages of currency, runs for currency, and in those periods, Canadian banknotes often uh, flooded into the U.S., Commercial banknotes flooded in from Canada to uh, meet the demand for currency that the U.S. banks were not able to meet themselves. So that's an interesting point in favor of free banking right there. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I recently visited Northern Ireland, and in Northern Ireland, you can uh, go into certain shops, and they'll they'll uh, they'll uh, they'll they'll give you the Ulster banknotes or banknotes that are issued by the Bank of Ulster that are uh, backed, I guess, by the uh, by the Bank of England, but. Yes, they are up to, uh, uh, except for, I think, a limited and fixed fiduciary issue, though I'm not so sure what the rules are in Ireland. You do have remnants of free freedom of note issue in Ireland, in Scotland today, where there's still uh, uh, three, I believe, note issuing banks, or is it down to two yet, mm-hmm. and in Hong Kong. But these are but the vestiges of, of what were much freer uh, banking systems of the past, uh, to which uh, a lot of regulatory uh, red tape has been applied. Nevertheless, if you ask a Scottish banker, would he like to be, or, or a Northern Ireland banker, whether uh, he or she would like to be deprived of the privilege of issuing notes, they'll tell you, uh, thank you very much, but we'd like to keep that. And it isn't just a matter of pride. It's a matter of profit because uh, in places where people are accustomed to treating the notes of commercial banks as being as good as those of any central bank, those banks can keep inventories of their own notes in their cash machines and tills and stock up very little on they have to, uh, on central bank money, even though it's the ultimate money of the realm. And that saves them considerable inventory costs because they don't have... They don't have to lock up any assets. It's just the paper until it's put into circulation, the regulations that they have to be backed 100% by Bank of England money, for example. Those don't apply until the notes are actually issued. So 
to saving on inventory that's very important. So given the success, the relative success of free banking historically, why have we moved away from it? Is it, is it just a consolidation of power within government, um, or is it something else? The story varies from place to place. Some, often it was a matter of uh, consolidation of power, but it also was a matter of misunderstanding, where I'm afraid economists uh, played their part. It's very interesting to note that uh, when you go back to the times when these free banking systems flourished and, and when you could compare their performance to, to neighboring systems, as you could compare the Canadian system to the U.S. or the Scottish system to the English system, uh, you find in contemporary discussions and documents an overwhelming awareness. It wasn't controversial overwhelming awareness of the superiority of the freer systems. Yes, there were some experts who tried to make the case that, that uh, the less free systems, the English system, should be uh, uh, used as a model for Scotland, or that they somehow, I'm a very, actually relatively few people thought the pre-fed uh, uh, U.S. system was a model for anything. But if you asked uh, the people living at the time in both systems, whether they were happy with their banking systems, whether they thought they worked well, the Canadian response would be, well, yes, of course, it works very well. And the U.S. response would be, oh, we've got to reform things. But even back then, it wasn't obvious to everybody that the way to improve the less well-functioning systems was to make them like the freer systems. There were people who understood that, and there were others who didn't. So the story in the United States was particularly sad there were actually, before the Federal Reserve Act was passed, there were probably a dozen bills put before Congress to some degree. That is, they may not have gotten very far, but a dozen of them at least uh, made it to Congress in, in some way that were proposing reforms along Canadian lines, and they were all shot down. But this was only partly a matter of misunderstanding uh, the record. It was also, and this is where power comes in, in the U.S. case, it was also special interests who uh, influenced legislation. I wrote a paper on this uh, called uh, New York's Bank uh, and uh, about the rise of the, the background leading to the creation of the Fed. The title of the paper is a play on uh, um, uh, Lowenstein's book, is it uh, Richard Lowenstein's book, uh, America's bank. That's his name for the Fed. New York's bank is my name for it because it was the powerful New York bankers uh, who really drove the reform effort leading to the Fed and who, sh who shaped it and manipulated it, got control of it. And they did this because the uh, status quo system, for all its instability, shunted reserves towards New York through a correspondence system that was essential as a substitute for nationwide branch banking. And so they made a lot of money off these correspondent uh, balances of the flow of funds into them, which they would in turn uh, lend out as uh, stock market call loans. That was a huge part of the instability of the system, but it was still profitable for them. So to make a long story short, they, uh, they had some senators, notably Nelson Aldrich, in their pocket and he was the head of the Senate Finance Committee for many years, and he would just crush any bill that tried to change the system until the Panic of 1907, 
At that point, the momentum for reform was so great that you couldn't just stop any reform. So instead, they took control of it. Aldrich set up his National Monetary Commission, and he made sure to control the reform agenda to come up with legislation that would uh, maintain the, the interests of the New York banks. Ultimately, his bill didn't pass, but through uh, several quirks of history, the Democrats came up with their own Federal Reserve legislation that maintained, retained all the essential components of the Aldrich bill. And so, in the end, the bankers, the New York bankers, got what they wanted, and we got a central bank. So we talk, we've talked about free banking. You just talked about what led up to the central bank. I don't think anyone's talking about abolishing the Fed at this point. So we need... A few people are, of course. A few people are. I don't know that that's within the, the realm of what's going to happen in, in the near term. So, so a, what a lot of conservatives talk about is a rules-based yes, Fed or, right. or that kind of thing. I know that you've um, talked a bit about um, nominal GDP targeting. Can you talk a little bit about your views on that, other rules? Sort of what should the Fed's role be today? Right, so uh, to, to try to segue from uh, discussion, uh, a discussion of free banking, uh, the idea in free banking was that you had a monetary base that was rule-bound. In that case, it was a gold standard, and, and the quantity ultimately depended on the profits of gold mining. Uh, today, of course, we have a discretionary fiat-based money, and that's, a, in my opinion, and that of a lot of other critics of the Fed, that is a flimsy foundation on which to build even the best potential commercial banking system, uh, or the freest. So uh, uh, making banks free today alone would not give you a, 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 an ideal or even a particularly good monetary system that is in the sense of being substantially better than what we've got, because the ultimate control of the behavior of spending, prices, etc., would still remain with the Federal Reserve authorities for them to uh, screw up occasionally, as, as they've been doing in the past. So um, that's where a monetary rule comes in. And ideally, what you'd like to have is a rule for the fiat monetary base that does better than the gold standard did, because the gold standard was remarkably good, considering <laughs> uh, that uh, th this was not anybody's deliberate design, really more of a spontaneous setup. And it was also good because it was international, and that unfortunately is a feature of the gold standard that I think is going to be really hard to replicate. But in any event, if we're going to have a domestic rule-based monetary standard, I think uh, there are good alternatives. And the one you mentioned of a nominal GDP uh, targeting uh, target-based system, uh, I think, is uh, the most sensible, and, and here I'm endorsing the views of so-called market monetarists like Scott Sumner and my student David Beckworth. Uh, the idea is very simple, and it starts with asking, what does it mean to have a well-behaved supply of money? And uh, our answer is, well, it means that the it doesn't mean that any particular price index behaves in any particular fashion, as so many people think, and it doesn't just refer to it. And it doesn't simply mean that the unemployment rate is some number people would like to see achieved. It means that the flow of spending is stable, overall spending, 
or if you like what Keynesians call aggregate demand, but not just them. I always get attacked by free market types when I use the term aggregate demand as if it were itself a notoriously bad notion. But it is simply a fancy name for the total amount of money being offered for goods and services over a period of time. And that's what you really want to stabilize. And the best way to understand that is to think back to the old monetarist uh, Milton Friedman type rules that said, let's just have the money stock grow at a certain rate per year, 5% per year for M2, for example. And the problem with that is freedom, Friedman himself ultimately acknowledged was that velocity uh, turned out to not always be reliably stable. And that meant that the demand for money was changing so you could have a steady growth rate of the dollar supply, but spending would fluctuate all over the place and create booms and busts. Well, then target spending. What you're really doing then is to having a, a growth rule for the money supply that adjusts when the velocity changes in an offsetting way. And uh, the simple advantage of stable spending is the average business enterprise uh, uh, is able to get back its money outlay and therefore is not losing money or making profits. And in a free enterprise system, you don't care to have the average enterprise either lose money or make, I should say, above normal profits. Because if, if the average firm is doing that, how are you supposed to reallocate resources? Uh, what you want is for the systems that are, is for firms that are really prospering to get more resources and others to get less. And that means that an ideal set of signals will show some losers and some winners. And so stabilizing the flow of spending is a good way to avoid both profit booms, where too many people are profiting, so to speak, and more obviously recessions and depressions where there's too many firms suffering losses. It's that simple. You mentioned um, earlier and, and just now um, commodity-based systems. Are, do you... Do you reject commodity-based systems out of hand, or do you see nominal GDP targeting just as a the, the better alternative? Sort of, how do you place that? Because when, when you look at sort of conservative um, monetary policy folks, they sort of fall into those couple of categories there. So um, that's a really good question, and um, and uh, let, let me preface my answer by saying we can think of commodity systems as being. Uh, as involving price rules, where a price rule is the price of something is pegged or uh, fixed, and then uh, the quantity supplied depends on uh, the behavior of, of, uh, of uh, uh, the, uh, the production of the stuff given that fixed price. So under a gold standard, you essentially had a price of gold fixed at around $20 an ounce, and uh, that uh, was the nominal price of gold. And that meant if general prices were falling, the re real price of gold was increasing and people would produce more, etc. So the quantity adjusted in an automatic fashion, but based on a price rule. In contrast uh, with a quantity rule like the Friedman rule, you're, you're managing the quantity uh, itself directly. Okay, so which is better? Um, it's, my answer to that depends on the context. 
the historical gold standard, the classical gold standard that lasted until World War I, was, in my opinion, the best monetary system that the world has ever seen. And uh, it, uh, it functioned, I should say, it started around 1870 because that's when it became a true international standard as more and more countries jumped on board the gold bandwagon. And what this system delivered that was unique uh, was a combination of pretty good internal price and spending stability with internationally fixed exchange rates for a large part of the industrialized world. That combination has never been beat. You could point to, and economists often point to, the uh, uh, short-run instabilities experienced in various gold standard countries. Uh, and no doubt there were those some some such instability was uh, inherent to having a gold standard, but it should also be said that those countries that suffered the most instability under the gold standard were ones like the United States and England that had poor banking and monetary legislation. There were other others like Scotland and Canada where because the banking system uh, regulation was wiser they had better gold standard experiences and pretty good experiences, not perfect. So from a historical point of view, um, I think that uh, the, the, the price-based, price-rule-based uh, classical gold standard was, was incredible. And if I could may wave a magic wand and, and have us restore that system, which would involve a bunch of countries, I might do it. But the question today is, what's the best setup going forward? And the answer to that question isn't the same because, well, I don't have a magic wand and no one else has a magic wand that can make the old... I have a magic wand. Well, you go ahead and wave it and let's see what happens because I've already told you I don't mind, right? <laughs> but, but let's suppose nobody has a, a magic wand. wand. Um, then we have to ask, what's the best system going forward? And the first thing to realize about a gold standard as an option assuming it's the best price rule type standard that we could come up with. There might be some other metal that could be better, or some other commodity, but let's just stick to gold. The first thing that has to be recognized is the advantages of the classical gold standard stemmed to a very great extent from its international character. So we're already talking about not just the problem of convincing one country to have a gold standard, but the problem of trying to get a whole bunch of them to agree to do it. That already puts the gold standard almost beyond the pale of uh, mm -hmm. realizability. But that isn't all. Uh, there's a perhaps even more serious problem in trying to go back or, or go to some version of, a, of any kind of convertibility or price-fixing-based standard. Remember, a price-fixing standard is also a convertibility standard where the paper money is readily convertible or redeemable in the metal or commodity that's for the price of which is fixed. That's part of the price-fixing apparatus. And the problem is this. In the 19th century, until World War I, when the gold standard worked, it worked even with countries that had central banks that were their main source of paper money. And that's because those central banks were trusted. They, even the central bankers themselves, did not, were not aware that they could just break the rules of the gold standard with impunity. They still thought of themselves as being under the same rules as ordinary banks are, in the, in the sense that ordinary banks don't think that they, they, you can't go, if you go to your bank uh, today, your banker can't tell you, well, 
yes, Mr. Jones, uh, I know you had $1,000 in deposits on your account, and we normally would give you one Federal Reserve dollar for each of those, but we've, we've decided to have a devaluation and we're going to just give you 50 cents for each. They can't do that. Central banks discovered after World War II that they could do it, and they could do it with impunity, and they really discovered it after the Great Depression. The trust genie that was essential for maintaining a gold standard, a price, fixed price, commodity standard, uh, that genie left the bottle, and you cannot put it back. It is almost impossible to imagine trusting the Fed. If the Fed told us today that it was going to restore gold convertibility tomorrow, and it announced uh, a conversion price for its paper money, and it picked a good price. It did everything right, and its intentions were all honorable. A lot of people, knowing their history, would waste no time going to convert those dollars into gold, and they would make the system fall apart uh, uh, very quickly after it got started. Economists recognize this generally in the phenomenon of speculative tax on, on fixed exchange rate systems, and we've seen them. A lot of uh, fixed exchange rate systems go down in the recent decades, uh, where those systems usually had links not to gold but to the U.S. dollar. Mm -hmm. But the same problem that afflicted those dollar-based systems abroad would afflict the U.S. if it had a gold-based system today because of the lack of trust in central bankers. That trust was killed off. I don't know how you created it. What about the uh, commodity basket-type systems? I don't think that commodity basket systems offer advantages beyond those of a, any other convertibility system like a gold standard that are worth the extra trouble. For one thing, with a gold standard, the, the whole idea was that the thing was enforced by the fact that you could take a paper dollar and you could get a piece of gold. And that, in the end, was what held it together, uh, or the belief that you could do that. In a commodity basket system, first of all, you have this problem that, you know, you, you, your dollar is convertible into a bunch of things, or is it really? Um, some of them have a compensated dollar, so you really are converting into gold, but the amount of gold you get adjusts depending on the gold value of the basket. So you can do all these things. I don't think that the gains from in complexity of those arrangements are worth the extra trouble, partly because every time someone thinks they have a representative basket that uh, kind of tracks the general level of prices, which is what they're typically really trying to stabilize in these systems, uh, um, every time they think they have such a thing within sample that fits good, if you wait five years or even two or three, uh, often those, those representative baskets cease to do what their proponents think they do. They stop following it. When I was in grad school, there was a basket called the ANCAP, which stood for ammonia or aluminum nitrate. I can't remember all the commodities in there. Bob Hall at Stanford was one of the authors behind it, and everybody thought, wow, this is great. This mimics the price level pretty well, but it's a small set of goods. Soon as you looked out of the sample, that is, you wait a year or two, it starts to not track very well. So that's the first point. The second is the goal of these systems is to 
stabilize the general price level or the inflation rate, and I don't think that's the right goal. As I said earlier, ideally what you want isn't a stable price level. You want a stable flow of spending. So if you go through all the trouble to concoct these baskets so that you get a more stable general price level, what you're doing is setting up a monetary system that's better at targeting something it probably shouldn't be trying to target. I'll just give you a, a, an example. In the gold standard of the 19th century, you didn't have a perfectly stable price level, except in the very long run. Over long periods, you would have mild deflation, one or two or three percent per year. turned out that, although that was true, that setup actually was also more consistent with fairly stable nominal spending. And, uh, and, and therefore, you could argue that the deflation that a gold standard allowed that a fancier commodity standard might not have allowed was actually closer to the stable and GDP ideal than, than, uh, than, the, gold uh, uh, than uh, uh, the fancier standard would have been. Does Bitcoin and cryptocurrency make everything that we've been talking about irrelevant? No. If I had to choose between two statements, I'd say everything we're talking about makes Bitcoin irrelevant. But, um, but uh, I don't think that either statement is, is quite fair. Uh, Bitcoin is a, a, and other cryptocurrencies, and of course it's, it's dangerous to generalize too much uh, these days about cryptocurrency, since there are so many now with, with with some pretty huge variations in principle, but but many of them, most of them, and certainly Bitcoin, they're their own unique monetary standards. So they're not tied to gold, they're not tied to any other commodities, and they're not tied to the U.S. dollar. Um, in, indeed, uh, Bitcoin, to pick on that most closely resembles uh, uh, an automatic-based currency organized uh, around Milton Friedman's growth rate rule, mm -hmm. except that uh, the growth rate uh, uh, tapers off uh, and eventually approaches zero as the total stock of Bitcoin uh, hits 21 million uh, units. And I suppose we still have a, a decade or so to go before we're pretty much on that asymptote. Uh, maybe maybe uh, between one and two decades. Anyway, that is the principle of Bitcoin, and it suffers uh, from all the uh, disadvantages of Milton Friedman's fixed rate growth rule, first of all, and also from the fact that ultimately it will be a zero rate growth rule, and which means it no, has no capacity to allow the stock of basic money to grow in response to demand. And let's remember that even a gold standard, which is often considered the hard money ideal, you never had an absolutely fixed stock of monetary gold. You always had a growing stock. So we, we've never tried an experiment where we relied on an absolutely fixed stock of any medium exchange. Those are the problems with Bitcoin, particularly uh, as an ideal potential monetary standard. Apart from that is the reality that... Uh, it can only work if a lot of people adopt it as a standard, and, and in that respect, it has uh, a, a very big uphill battle yet ahead. But I, I would argue that Bitcoin, like other currencies, we shouldn't look at them as a monetary standard independent of others, but rather one uh, monetary option within an ecosystem of emerging currencies that are all going to be competing with one another. 
Sure, uh, uh, that's fine, and that is what it is uh, to some extent. It has other applications, but but the point is that uh, the the scope for substitution, not just from one brand of dollars to another brand of dollars, which I think can be very great. That's why I'm a free banking fan because I I believe even today. Uh, banks could do a, uh, give the government a run for its money, so to speak, when it comes to competing with it in the paper dollar space. But but they do so by providing dollar close dollar substitutes, redeemable, exchangeable in dollars. Uh, in contrast, when we're talking about competition between different monetary, uh, between uh, uh, units of currency that are uh, distinct in their ultimate uh, uh, values and exchange rates. That kind of competition, there's, there's relatively limited scope for it. That is, it, it might, this might change in the future with technology, but right now it's overwhelmingly convenient for people in particular areas to all settle on, as it were, one or a small number of currency units and do all their business in those, which is why you could have a perfectly good Swiss franc and go down to your local supermarket and have no luck at all buying anything with it. And it's the same with the Bitcoin, of course. But isn't that, I mean, isn't that the potential beauty of the future is that technology may allow for instantaneous clearing of all the different currencies. And if you have a system that allow that, that deregulates it, um, then you would have true competitive currencies where, they're all clearing simultaneously on a debit card or an account or something and allows it to happen seamlessly. Well, and, you, and, and through that, mm-hmm. you get a stronger, more sustainable currency because you don't put all your, all your eggs in one basket. Yeah, in theory, in principle, uh, this, of course, is Hayek's argument for uh, denationalization of money. But, uh, but in practice, uh, it's, it's not so simple. It's true that when we go abroad, we use our credit cards. We can buy anything with any uh, uh, anywhere with a credit card or debit card uh, that uh, the payments get cleared, etc. And yet, and yet, it's still the case that within any uh, well-integrated e- e- economy or community, you find that uh, people find it most convenient to limit themselves and their dealings to uh, usually just one kind of money. Uh, and that uh, currency drives this to some extent. There's still a lot of currency transactions, and you can imagine that sellers at stores, etc., don't want to have to have tills that can accommodate a million different uh, currency units. The only places where I know that happens is at airports, where you have the uh, duty-free shops, and they'll take your dollars or your francs or what your euros or what have you. Uh, but in general, this is not something that People find it convenient to do, and there's a there's a tendency for people to coalesce on a single uh, kind of money. And this, after all, uh, is uh, we have a, an eminent authority telling us that these tendencies are important, and that's Carl Menger, going back to the 1890s and earlier in his theory of how money evolves. That the very very essence of money is to be a spontaneous, originally spontaneous solution to our coordination problem. How can we all agree on certain things that we can use as money, which, of course, which agreement only serves to make those things 
all the more reliably useful as such, right? So if, if everybody will use the same thing, there's nobody I can't trade with if I take that thing. And this is what drives this tendency towards the clustering of, uh, of choices around particular units. Whereas the minute you uh, have a unit that isn't widely used, like Bitcoin, uh, then it, it faces a very, very steep gradient in gaining acceptability. And yes, we've seen more merchants climb on the Bitcoin bandwagon, but that bandwagon still remains very small. And it's not because of regulations yet. Yes, there are some regulations that are a pain, and it is particularly uh, detrimental to Bitcoin that, that it's difficult to build a banking system on top of it under existing rules. Nevertheless, I think that there, were, there are also powerful market forces in fav favoring an incumbent currency that uh, are difficult, not impossible, for private market forces to overcome, even when they're assisted by fancy technology. So ultimately, how do you see the rise in uh, alternative currencies? Is it something to get excited about? Is it uh, no different than the past? Uh, and you know, we we referenced earlier. I can't remember if it was uh, George or Jack, um, but there are uh, uh, certain technologies that are coming out of uh, the rise in the in these currencies, blockchain, for instance, mm -hmm. that have alternative uses. Uh, is is that what will be the big uh, outcome from the rise in alternative currencies that we're seeing today? Yes, if I had to guess, I would say that uh, blockchain will see its greatest successes, uh, not as the basis for uh, new currencies that compete uh, uh, to a substantial degree with established uh, monies, but, uh, but in other applications and clearing and settlement and information, uh, communications, uh, security. So bit, it, uh, blockchain is, is much, much bigger than Bitcoin, and it's much, much bitter, bigger than any uh, digital coin. It's a technology that uh, I think we're only beginning to see the potential uses of. That doesn't, that's not to completely downplay the potential uh, uh, for successful blockchain-based currencies, but I do think that uh, right now, at least, the, uh, uh, the, there's a, a tendency for people to have an overly optimistic view about how, how uh, uh, popular those currencies will become as currencies not as investment uh, vehicles, but as things that people actually employ in regular exchange. One of the uh, cool things to talk about right now is uh, how are we going to fund the Green New Deal, universal basic incomes, health care for everyone, and it seems that the, uh, the right answer is modern monetary theory. Um, we'll just print all the money. What do you think about Money's that? Money is made up. Money, 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 money is made up. That's the that's that's MMT. Well, I've been writing a, a fair amount about mon modern monetary theory uh, lately, as have um, mon monetary economists of all sorts and others as well. And uh, first of all, if 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 what you want is to have uh, your brain exercised, right? If you if you want. Uh, uh, to, to be thinking hard about monetary institutions and fiscal ones, 
Uh, you could do worse than to struggle with monetary, uh, modern monetary theorists' arguments, um, and because uh, because they're very smart and they do know a lot of things. I think they're fundamentally wrong about a lot of things, but they 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 turn things topsy turvy, and uh, that can be disorienting, uh, and it can be very difficult sometimes to to really understand what they're saying, let alone figure out where and why it is not correct. Um, but one of the main things they do in this in this overturning of conventional wisdom is they reverse the role of fiscal and monetary policy from what how these are conventionally perceived. And what that means is that, yes, they think that printing money is the answer uh, to financing the Green New Deal or otherwise, in the sense that they think that the Feds should just provide whatever the Treasury wants. But they also believe that the fiscal authorities, that is the Treasury and, and uh, Congress, that they have the duty then to regulate their projects, and including th- and not just what they spend, but their taxation, to avoid inflation. Mm-hmm. So they're not they're not inflationists. They are in favor of just having the Fed accommodate the, the government uh, without any constraints, even maintaining a, a zero interest rate target for securities. So essentially, all securities would be like paper money itself, non-interest-bearing. But they would contain spending uh, and thereby contain inflation through uh, uh, a combination of uh, taxation, first of all, but ultimately by containing the total amount of expenditures that the government engages in. Because, of course, if you tax and spend, that's not slowing down the the total of spending. So so they're counting on the fiscal authorities not just to limit spending, but to regulate government spending as a way of regulating the behavior of the price level. And uh, that's very controversial. And I think a lot of critics of modern monetary theory, like including myself, simply don't believe that, uh, that Congress is up to it, uh, not simply because of a lack of will, Though that's part of the problem, politicians get lots of rewards by spending freely, and not so many by taxing, and not any by cutting programs. But also because, from a purely technical point of view, uh, trying to modify government spending—that's that's trying to to turn a very very large ocean wo- liner on a dime, uh, if you can do it at all. You can, the way our Congress works, the way decisions are made about spending and programs, it's not that easy. Whereas the Fed, with its mandates, however flawed, uh, can respond relatively quickly to developments in the macroeconomy, including inflation and such. And so uh, they have to envision a government implicitly that works a lot differently than our actual government does in order for their uh, ideal arrangements to make sense and they they glide rather i think casually over the many many difficulties involved as if the fact that they could imagine it in their heads means that we could actually see it work those are very different it it also seems to me that it takes the american economy which is a largely a private economy with 
public expenditures as part of it and turns that on and said would turn our economy into a public economy with a little bit of private activity on, on, on the margins because what you're essentially doing is putting government in control of all spending. That's essentially right. Uh, if they were to finance many of the projects they seem inclined to finance, that is have the Fed print money for it, as their, their theory calls for uh, taxation, uh, 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 among other things, uh, to control the inflation. Right? right? They can limit. They can limit what the government spends, but they can also limit private spending. Right, because that's what they, they flood the money and then they pull it out through taxation. The ultimate tendency will be for them to, uh, I think, uh, tax everybody to the point where the only things get, that get paid for and the only things you get are what the government provides. It pushes you towards a socialist, if not communist, system by uh, alternative terms that have been applied. In, that have been attempted in the past, because what you end up with is government control over everything. Well, I think that that could be a practical consequence. It's not a it's not a necessary implication of their theory, because their theory doesn't say just how many projects they want the government to undertake. So, uh, but when you hear them talk about some projects they'd like to undertake, they clearly want to undertake a lot, well, and it's going to cost a lot. And since total spending can't rise too much, though they think it can rise a lot more without triggering inflation, uh, that means that private sector spending is just going to have to retreat an almost corresponding amount. And in that sense, yes, that's the direction that it takes things in. Though I would hate to find myself in an argument with a modern monetary theorist where I had to make the case that they were really communist, I know I'd be in for a rather unpleasant <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> uh, so coming off of that, um, you recently wrote about the uh, Fed chairman's decision to continue a policy that was originally implemented uh, during the crisis. And in particular, you wrote that uh, it's now uh, more tempting than ever for politicians to expect the Fed to serve not just as the banking system's lender of last resort, but as the government's financier of last resort. That's Can you true. go into that a little bit more? Yes. So that was a, an article I wrote uh, for the Washington Post that uh, that argued that um, uh, the changes since the crisis in the Fed's operating system are ones that actually make it harder for it to uh, not uh, accommodate requests for monetizing this and that, uh, or this and that could be uh, uh, ordinary treasury securities, or it could be special bonds for special programs and projects. And what I was referring to there is uh, the uh, the change by which the Fed went from using it, the size of its balance sheet to regulate the, mon the stance of monetary policy as it did before 2008, to using interest on reserves to do so. And I think, as most uh, of your listeners will will know, after 2008, uh, the Fed, by paying interest on reserves, got banks to just pile up excess reserves willy-nilly because they were earning more on the reserves than, uh, than they might earn, all things considered, by making risky loans. So uh, that meant that as the Fed created more reserves, and it ultimately created many uh, uh, several trillion dollars worth, those reserves mainly piled up in the banking system, especially at some of the big banks in New York. Uh, instead of uh, being employed to generate more 
commercial bank loans and grow the quantity of deposits. If you look at M2, the measure of the broad money supply, it's flat during QE. It grows at a very steady rate, more or less like before the crisis. But the reserves are growing like mad. That never happened before. That's all because of interest on reserves. Okay, what does this have to do with modern monetary theory, the New Deal, uh, Green New Deal, and all that? Well, what it means is that we now have a Federal Reserve that cannot say, oh, we can't make our balance sheet bigger because that will stimulate monetary growth, which will cause too much inflation. It doesn't work that way anymore. The inflation rate is not so much a function of the size of the balance sheet as it is a function of the interest rate on reserves. Holding that interest rate constant, the Fed could gobble up all kinds of debt without without necessarily contributing that much to inflation. Now, of course, if the government is spending that much more, that will cause the inflation, but the Fed can't say that its monetary policy is doing it, which, of course, means that uh, it's harder for the Fed to say no. That is, they have one less reason for saying no. The biggest reason used to be, we can't do this. We can't accumulate your bonds. We can't fund your program because we'll violate our inflation mandate. That's no longer true. And the, the Fed economists know this. They know this. If you read the early articles, even before the crisis, about how a system like the current one, the so-called floor operating system, works, never mind why it's called that, but if you read, read the articles, they all say, in this system, creating more reserves, which is what the Fed does when it buys securities, does not, that does not alter the stance of monetary policy. That doesn't change interest rates. That doesn't, it just makes the Fed bigger. Mm-hmm. So I think this is a very, very bad arrangement if the Fed is, would like to fend off uh, people who want to build a gigantic wall or fund a Green New Deal and are looking to the Fed's printing presses to help out, uh, the Fed no longer has as solid a basis for refusing as it would have had at one time. Let me ask a different kind of question. What do you think of Alexander Hamilton? Oh, vastly overrated. I once, uh, I once tweeted. Uh, I'm talking the man, not the musical. Yes, I know. Okay, but I'm going to allude to to, to both. <laughs> I once tweeted uh, in response to a critique uh, my uh, uh, former colleague and mentor Larry White uh, wrote about uh, Hamilton. I tweeted, uh, I tweeted uh, his post with the headline, Alexander Hamilton deserves a bad rap. (laughs) (laughs) That's terrible. And and, uh, he does, not in the sense that he was an unintelligent or bad man. He wasn't any of those things. He's just vastly overrated. And one way in which he's vastly overrated by people that Larry, I think, points out in in that post or elsewhere is that um, he's presented as having been this uh, financial genius who just had this great understanding of the system and what it needed, etc. They're very, very forward-looking, seeing the future. Now, part of this is just people doing what Lowenstein, Roger, Roger Lowenstein, I'm sorry, I called him Richard earlier, I apologize to everybody for that. Roger Lowenstein, uh, in, in, in his book about the Fed, practices a sort of... Uh, 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 w- 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 uh, this 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 kind of history where 
since we know what we ended up with, all the people who helped get us in this direction, point us in this direction, they were the good guys and everybody who wanted to do something else was bad. And um, it's a kind of Whiggism. Anyway, one reason why people are so fond of Hamilton was because he was pro-Bank of the United States. Well, we did ultimately end up with the Fed, and the Bank of the United States was kind of like the Fed, so he must have been the forward-looking progressive person. That's not, that's not true at all. Hamilton's vision for the Bank of the United States was simply was simply uh, copying or wanting to copy the English system at the time. And uh, the Bank of the United States was going to be like the, the, the Bank of England because that's what he knew. And it was, as, it was exactly as uh, radical, exactly as progressive as if uh, one had, say, favored having a king rather than a president, for example. Yeah. which some people thought Hamilton also might have preferred. So there's nothing, there's nothing profoundly original about his scheme for the uh, uh, American finance, at least not as original as people think. And in some respects, it was ultra-conservative, and, uh, and it embodied all of what I would say are the, the, the bad features of a centralized system. Not to say that Jefferson, mind you, was the, the the person who was right, because Jefferson, unlike Hamilton, didn't didn't really understand banks at all and was hostile to them, and that that too was quite backward. So a pox on both their houses, I say. Uh, uh, nobody got it right in those debates of, on the uh, uh, on how banking should proceed in the United States at the time of the formation of the republic. I'm afraid nobody got it right. Um, one of the questions that maybe we should have asked to begin with, but I want to get your take on is why should we care about monetary policy? Uh, yes. Well, I'm glad you didn't ask me at the beginning because we might have got stuck there. <laughs> um, I think we should care. I've always cared about monetary policy and, 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 and therefore found myself uh, 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 doing it for my whole career uh, because uh, – it seems to me that's the one policy where the screw-ups affect the most people. In other areas, industrial policy, uh, well, I suppose uh, climate policy is another example where, you know, if it's wrong, everybody suffers. But, but in the m more conventional areas of economic policy, uh, monetary policy always struck me as the one that could uh, uh, do the uh, greatest damage if done badly and the greatest good if done well. Because when the monetary system malfunctions, the waste is incredible and all, almost all pervasive. Uh, and that's because of money's pervasive role as the medium of exchange. I think in my, my first book I made an analogy between, I was talking about the price system. And we know from Econ 101 that if you get our price wrong in the market, say there's some price fixing for rent or something, uh, but it could be a, 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 some other even private market mispricing. Uh, you're going to get a disequilibrium, a distortion, shortages, surpluses, etc., but confined to one or a small number of markets. Um, if the money supply is mismanaged, you really end up with distortions all around. And the analogy I made was with a bicycle wheel, right? Think about the spokes and the, if you like, the nipples uh, around this bicycle wheel as representing the individual prices. And if, you, if the prices are off, you get a wobble or a hop, right? You gotta, that one spoke isn't tight enough or is too 
too tight. And uh, a wrong monetary policy then would be analogous to having the, the hub itself be distorted. And that those distortions, of course, are magnified on the outer parts of the wheel. So even if the spice, you can't tighten the spokes uh, uh, enough to get rid of the distortions, which will be all around. That's, that's my way of thinking of the importance of monetary policy and getting it right. Um, and, uh, and, and, of course, getting it right is very challenging, you know, and that's why we have all these debates about how we want the money supply to behave, uh, what's the best way to get it to behave that way, and so on. So we end every podcast by asking a two-part question. Uh, what is the biggest problem that public policy can do something about, and then what's the biggest problem that public policy can't do something about? Oh, my goodness. Uh, now you've got me uh, having to get out of uh, from under my monetary economist hat <laughs> and think about all the different public policy problems that are out there. And uh, that is very intimidating. Um, and I hate to say the wrong thing. It's uh, the tempting thing <laughs> is for somebody like me is to uh, imagine that the most important problems are in his field, right? Yeah. So you, you know, attempting to say, oh, it's kind of some monetary thing, because that's what I know. Yeah. Uh, but I dare say, I think I would be wrong if I insisted that right now in the United States today, uh, monetary policy is our biggest problem. I'm very concerned about the future of monetary policy, but I don't think it's our biggest problem. Um, I think our our biggest problems... Uh, have to do, uh, first of all, uh, with, uh, I think I think that uh, immigration policy tops monetary policy uh, most obviously, and I think the best thing we could do there is to stop being anti-immigration. Frankly, uh, I think uh, that, uh, that uh, we could accomplish a, a great deal and then turn our attention to other problems. If we recognize the net benefits that immigration gives us, we that would be, a, and then acted on that understanding by letting a lot more people come in. Uh, I think that that would do a great deal of good for those persons, for most obviously, first of all, but ultimately would make Americans of all sorts uh, better off. So offhand, I think that's probably the easiest mm-hmm. thing we could do that would have a lot of benefits. But going along with that would have to be uh, a considerable change in rhetoric to change the attitudes about about uh, about foreigners, and about uh, immigrants in particular. So is that, a, is that a problem that policy can't solve? No, I think it... Uh, well, uh, the, 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 the cultural attitudes, attitudes yeah. Cultural attitudes, uh, of course, uh, go beyond uh, what policymakers directly control, but they set the tone. Mm-hmm. They set they they can set an example. I think they can set an example, whereas anti-immigration rhetoric has uh, is a very bad example, uh, rhetoric that favors open immigration and argues for it and defends it uh, uh, can can change people's attitude, and uh, and of course actually being exposed to larger numbers of immigrants can help. And I I I, I hate to have to add this, but. You know, a lot depends on the kinds of immigration you have to deal with, and um, I think that the immigration challenges we face 
are, are very small compared to some faced in other countries, mm-hmm. uh, that our task is actually pretty easy for us. I think we'd, uh, it's easier to make the case that the social problems that would arise as a result of more open borders would not, f- for us, uh, uh, be uh, anything like what they'd have to be to offset the potential gains. I'm not sure about other countries, and particularly when you're talking about potentially very, very large numbers of, uh, uh, of, of immigrants coming all at once. That does create great problems. It's a good answer. Um, not to get make this an immigration policy podcast. Please don't, because my, expertise is, <laughs> uh, my lack of expertise is probably already showing, and it's only going to get worse. I... Um, you know, Heritage Foundation spends a lot of time thinking about immigration, and certainly we wouldn't characterize everything that you just said as you said it, but I think the general sentiment behind what you said is important, which is we definitely need immigration reform. We need to recognize the important role that immigration plays both uh, economically in the United States and culturally, and we need to have a system that makes sure that we get... Um, the folks in here who uh, can help the economy, help us grow as a country as, as they always have done. Yeah, I think the self-selection among immigration immigrants is very important. You get a lot of people who are very, very anxious to, to able to and willing to be good citizens. Mm-hmm. And it's a shame to keep them out. Thanks so much, George. This has been great. I feel like we could keep going on forever. Um, but uh, hopefully you'll come back. I'd love to. Thanks so much for joining us. I've very much enjoyed it. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you both. Thanks for tuning in to Liberty and Justice for All with Jack and Paul. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes or Stitcher so that others can find us, and look for a new episode every couple of weeks.